Well, welcome to episode four of The Afterward, our series of conversations on books, reading, and the church. My name is Josiah Pettit. I'm the director here at the Westminster Bookstore. And uh, here at WTSBooks.com, we do what we do because we believe that books and reading play a profound role in the life and health of the church. As a team, we continue to be uh, just so encouraged by your response to the afterward. Uh, It's been uh, fun, and we've loved sharing a little bit of the process behind what makes a good book great, as well as introducing you to the authors that are behind these books that have been a, a blessing to so many. In the coming months, we'll be featuring episodes with Nancy Guthrie, Ed Welch, Darby Strickland, and Mark Dever. Uh, So we hope you'll stay tuned and spread the word. Tonight, we're glad to have Johnny Gibson back from vacation to host Melissa Kruger. Melissa is the director of women's content at the Gospel Coalition, as well as the author of Envy of Eve and Growing Together. Her latest book was published just last week by The Good Book Company. It's called Wherever You Go, I Want You to Know. And uh, we've, we've got it on sale right now for a special uh, launch window. So you can pick up bulk quantities at up to 60% off. Uh, so if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to hop on over to our website, wtsbooks.com afterward and pick up a copy. In this episode, Melissa and Johnny will be chatting about blog writing versus book writing. They'll be talking about mentoring and discipleship. And uh, of course, they'll also be talking about Melissa's new kids book. So with that, by way of introduction, uh, let me turn it over to Johnny and Melissa with a question. What was the first thing you wrote that was published in some sort of public format? Uh, The first publishable thing that I wrote, Josiah, um, was uh, way back in the early noughties. Um, I uh, wrote a book review for a website my brother and I were uh, work uh, that we'd put up called Beginning with Moses. uh, And I wrote a book review uh, for that and it was put up on the website. But uh, I wrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it and then wrote it again. And um, it was just before I was going to head off to theological college. And I remember thinking, I don't know why I'm heading to theological college when I can't even write a book review. So, uh, uh, and at times I feel like nothing's improved since then. But um, yeah, what about you, Melissa? What was the first uh, thing that went public that you ever wrote? You know, I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit this. Um, the first publishable thing I wrote was my book, The Envy of Eve. I had okay. never never written an article. I had, mm-hmm. I, I didn't consider myself a writer at all. Um, mm-hmm. And yet I had started writing Bible studies for women just in my church, never thinking they should be published. You know, just, it kind of happened because we couldn't find Bible studies at the time that we really liked. And then women would miss. So I started writing summaries for them. And then people started saying, you should publish these. And I was thinking, no, you know, no. And um, so it's it's really funny to me. I did everything wrong as a writer. I, I mean, you know, you should start with articles. And mm-hmm. I didn't. So yeah. the, the, the first thing was the MVP. Okay. And so um, since then, you've published a, a number of books and you have a, uh, a regular blog that you write for. Um, what have you learned about writing from that first book that you produced to now? 
Yeah, yeah. I think um, the main thing I've learned is use less words. Um, <laughs> that if it can be said in less words, use less of them to communicate the point. And I think the other thing I've really learned um, is illustrations can do so much to help guide your reader into what you're trying to show them. And that can be done very quickly. It doesn't have to be two and a half pages. I mean, you know, when I think of Thomas Brooks in Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, and he says, you know, Satan, he'll, he'll show the bait and he'll hide the hook. Okay, that two you know, few word illustration speaks so much in his explanation of how Satan's working to try to lure you in. And you know what? It's still relevant hundreds of years later. Um, mm -hmm. He used nature to prove his point. And so I think good writing often takes something that we know to be true and uses it to explain a spiritual point. Mm. I think I remember reading C.S. Lewis in one of his uh, letters to his ch to the children. You know, he had that book on letters to children. I think he makes the same point. If you can say it in less words, do, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, have there been any books on actual writing that you've mm. read and found helpful? Yeah, I think on, on this, the first thing I always tell people is just to read good books, period. Um, even before you read books on writing, I, I know, I think there is something about hearing a sentence um, mm -hmm. and the more you put yourself in good books and it, it doesn't have to be in the same genre. You know, it can be mm -hmm. fiction. It can be um, historical narrative. It can be, you know, what, whatever you're reading can really help you learn how sentences should be. Yeah. I mean, it's great to read a book on writing, but for me, I think some of the most helpful thing has just been reading beautiful, beautifully written books by, by different authors. But one I really did love was, have you read On Writing Well by um, William Zinser? Don't know if mm -hmm. I'm saying that right. Yeah, um, yeah. I loved his book because mm -hmm. what he would tell you to do, he would do in a, the next sentence. Mm -hmm. So it was, mm -hmm. you know, he was saying, don't use overly long sentences because they really bore the audience when you go on and on and on and on, and then you change. Yeah. And he would be doing what he's telling you not to do. So I thought it was very creative, but mm -hmm. do you have one that you like? I always yeah. have to read them. Yeah. I, uh, I have two books that have helped me. One's called, uh, styling sentences. And, uh, what the author says is that in the English language, there are, uh, about 20, structure sentence structures that exist 20 ways to write a sentence uh with different sort of formats uh where you put the verb where you put the subject object prepositional phrase etc and so he they, they in the book they show you the 20 structures and that helped me because i my problem was i wasn't much of a reader growing up so i lacked this ability that you've just said to sort of have caught a lot of good writing and it sort of comes more naturally. That's not been the case with me. So I needed something to actually show me how sentences are structured. Uh, so that was very helpful. And then I read a really nice humorous book on punctuation uh, called Eats, Shoots and Leaves uh, by Lynn Truss, uh, a British author. And she just talks about punctuation and the importance of it and the importance of where you put the comma oh. and uh, the titles. Uh, comes from a joke about a panda who goes into a bar and eats, shoots, and leaves. Well, does he shoot the bar owner or does he eat, shoots, and leaves? Okay, it's all, all to do with where you put the comma, right? And um, 
she talks about how punctuation is sort of like good manners and it's mm. it's a way to help your readers not trip up on what mm. you're trying where you're trying to lead them that if you punctuate well uh, they, they actually have a smooth journey where you take them whereas if mm. it's not punctuated well they keep tripping up and having to go back and read the sentence so mm. those are two books that I find mm. helpful. I want to read those especially that second one I feel like I'm terrible at punctuation. Yeah. But <laughs> she'll make you a bit OCD about it. Like, yeah. so I, I now, when I'm watching an advert on TV, I'll say to Jackie, look there, there's a typo. And it's it's the compound adjective typo. It's missing oh. a hyphen, you know, the 24-hour delivery. And there's no hyphen between the 24 and the, the R or something like that. And uh, so I spot them all the time and adverts in the street. And, you know, so she'll See, make you a little bit OCD about yeah, I need to read this because I was actually, I was a math major in college. <laughs> so I, what, what I learned, there are lots of math rules too, but a math mm -hmm. rule is always based in a fact. You know, you can always go back to real numbers and just yeah. remind yourself of the rule. So that's how I, I could always remind myself. Grammar facts are never based in a necessary rule. It's just like, this is the fact. And so I'm terrible at remembering Yes. Where should that period go? Is it after the parentheses? Where should yeah those yeah. those things? I just it, it, I I need to read that book. That'd be really yeah. helpful. Well, well, I think you'd enjoy it because similar to the other one you mentioned on writing, well, she illustrates it in her own writing and with very funny and humorous mm -hmm. examples, and also some quite interesting historical examples with uh, telegrams that were sent with punctuation missing and how. <sighs> it led to, you know, a war in a country or something like that, that sort of if only it had been punctuated right, there oh. would be a different outcome. So, <laughs> so it's quite some quite interesting uh, historical and humorous uh, facts. Yeah. Now, Melissa, you, um, you've written books and you also write a blog. So uh, what's the difference for you between writing a blog and a book and what's your process for each? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to blog writing, I, I find that you need to really focus on saying one thing and saying it well. Um, what, one thing I've noticed, I actually edit um, for the Gospel Coalition, and some people you know, want to take one article and say 20 different things in it, and they're so excited, and they have all these thoughts, and they want to talk about the goodness of God from 20 different angles. And you know, you're like, just talk about it from one angle, you know, give, give one thing and you know, maybe have one main point and have three points that support it um, and try to keep your word count to 800 or 900 words. That's my big, um, and that means you go through and you tighten. Yeah. That's yeah. what I, I would, I would kind of say to myself, tighten this up, tighten this up. So I, I yeah. kind of write it all and normally it's way too many words. Mm -hmm. And then a day or two later you start chiseling. And I think that's what can make a, an article that will be actually read online because the problem with online reading, you are competing with every ding and notification of someone's phone. Mm -hmm. So if, if someone's reading online, they can scroll on to something much more interesting than your article. So you've got to really think, how do I make this sentence, make them want to read the next sentence and actually keep an attention span because you know, online reading is really difficult to stay yeah. focused. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, when you actually have an idea for a blog post, where do you begin? Do you begin typing some notes on your phone, on your iPad, or are you a pencil and pen or on paper person that has to sort of scribble ideas down and then you go 
and type them up. What's your process there? Yeah, I keep random scraps of paper like because you always think of the best article ideas you know like in the carpool line picking mm -hmm. up your kids or something so normally for me it's the scrap of paper somewhere tucked away and I'll find it and I'm like oh yeah that's that article I wanted to write you know because the three yeah. points will come in these random places so yeah I have a lot of scraps of paper I actually keep a little notebook in my purse that I can pull out and write down ideas but when it actually comes to writing I am a sit down in front of my computer and plug it out. I rarely write, um, you know, I rarely write an article by hand. Um, mm. But uh, by the time I get to the actual forming the sentences, you know, it's it's on the computer. But most of my mm. ideas and outlines are, are on scrap pieces of paper. <laughs> yeah. And so when you come to write a book, do you uh, write out the sort of analytical skeleton outline first? And, and then do you go bit by bit or do you sort of just write as it comes to you? Yeah, I wish I was kind of the latter. I, that would terrify me to just start writing mm -hmm. a book and just go for it. I am, um, again, I think it's my structured mathematical brain, how I like, it's very much, I have to see the beginning and the end. Where, where What is my argument? What am I trying to say throughout this book? And so for me, I, yeah, for every book I've written, I've had a full outline. Um, I knew where each chapter was going to actually keep um, word documents for every chapter so that when I have an idea, but that's for chapter seven, I go and just type it and say, remember to put in that C.S. Lewis quote, you know, in chapter seven, it's not meant for chapter two, you know, and I'm on chapter two now. And so I keep kind of buckets to throw stuff in. Um, but that's how my brain works. I admire people who can just write you know, I mean, I really do. I don't know what your process is like, but I, I just need the, the safety of an outline to know where I'm going. But I really do admire people who just can put it out there and somehow come to a beautiful conclusion. Yeah, yeah. By, by sitting down to write. And then when you finally do get your draft on, say, of a chapter, do you print it off and pencil and pen to edit it or do you edit it on the screen how do you how do you go about actually tightening it as you mentioned earlier yeah when i get down to final edits i print it and i mm -hmm. i just go at it with you know i read it almost like an editor you know so i look at yeah. it and say oh move this paragraph here mark that one out it didn't need to be there anyway and but i have to have space from that i have to yeah. have time away from it because you know mm -hmm. when you read it the next day it makes complete sense but when you read it a month later Sometimes you're like, that. what was I trying to say? This is yeah. terrible. Um, yeah. Or you just think of it a better word choice, you know, when you, that you couldn't think of yeah. when you were writing it three weeks before. So I tend to write it and then go on to the next chapter and then come back to that chapter. I need the pauses to yeah. let it breathe. Yeah. And uh, have you had anyone who uh, has mentored you in your writing? I know you've talked about... Um, you know, just reading good books and picking it up. You know, some writing is better caught than taught. But has there been anyone who over this journey, and we're going to get on to the idea of mentoring in a moment, has there been anyone who's sort of taken you under their wing and helped you with your writing? Yeah, I would say having good editors is so helpful. Um, yeah. And yeah, I've been I've been really blessed to work with great editors at the Gospel Coalition. And so yeah. Honestly, I can tell you, Colin Hansen and Matt Smethurst and Megan Hill, you know, I love giving them my words and saying, help me, yeah. um, especially Megan and I. Megan is, a, is an author herself and she works. She's our she's an editor for us. And 
she, I'll just say, oh, you make me sound better. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, you know, it's like when you go to the hairdresser and someone else does your hair. It's still your hair, but man, yeah. they made it look better. And so mm -hmm. having good friends like that, you really learn from them. Um, it's, it's really helpful to have people. And it's a real kindness of them to sit down and look at your work. Mm -hmm. um, and and I'll, I'll say this. I think one of the most important things younger writers can do is accept the editing help. If you mm -hmm. want to be a better writer, someone who's who's willing to take the time to re read your chapter and offer feedback, that's a kindness. Mm -hmm. They are trying to help you. Um, mm -hmm. and, and normally they're seeing something that you might not. And so I would say definitely that's been the way my writing has improved is by having good friends who are willing mm -hmm. to tell me that didn't really make sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, it's helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, was fortunate to um, study under the Regis Professor of Hebrew at Cambridge, and uh, he never he published a good bit of work, but he, as somebody said, he never published a magnum opus uh, because his students were his magnum opus, mm. and he poured himself into our writing. You know, he would just mark all over the page. Uh, a lot of professors, supervisors, just sort of read it and tell you, yeah, it's fine, fix it up, but. He meticulously went through and said that sentence needs better word or there's punctuation missing here. And it did. It made, made me a better writer because each time I wanted to have less marks on the page from him. I was, trying, it was like a school teacher. Again, I was back in school thinking, am I going to get a gold star this week? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, But it, yeah, it was that sort of fine tuning process of um, someone else looking at your work, you know. Um, uh, one of the bookstore uh, folk here wanted me to ask you, um, what's it like being married to another author? Uh, <laughs> do you and Mike uh, collaborate on projects? Um, what, what's that like? It's actually really fun. Um, I, I will say, and, and honestly, I never would have written a thing with, without him kind of cheering me on and encouraging me to do it. Um, but, and, he, and he's been so great. He has read everything I've written and, uh, you know, normally I'm just saying, make sure I'm not a heretic in some way. Yeah. Will you please, will yeah. you please make sure I haven't gone astray in some way, but it's, it's really fun because we both think in outlines, you know, and mm -hmm. so whether it's him preparing a sermon and us chewing on, Hey, what would be a good point to illustrate that? Cause mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's a lot of similarities to preparing a talk and preparing a chapter. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're trying to give a structure and an organization, they're very, very similar. And so we actually have a lot of fun. You know, I mean, it's something we didn't know that we both were going to do this. Neither of us were English majors or anything yes. like that. But we both love sitting around at the dinner table talking about different ideas and chewing on how could you do that book? What would that be like? Um, I'm really excited about one he has coming out next spring. It's mm -hmm. actually, we have a, a daughter who's in, she's, she's at college and she's at a large secular school and mm -hmm. it's basically, you know, his advice on the Christian mind to college students. And it's been so fun. Mm -hmm. That was one I could actually talk to him about because most of his are like, on the canon or Christianity in the second century. So I'm like no help for him, <laughs> uh -huh. you know, but this one was really, really fun mm -hmm. to get to just chew on together. Yeah. Is there a title for it that we can look out for? There is a title. 
and I should know the title, but I am not a very good wife. And so that is why I cannot remember the title right now. <laughs> sorry, for, sorry for putting you on the spot there, <laughs> but it's on the, the Christian Mind at College. Yes, I think so it's um, I think talk. it's something like Surviving Religion 101. Okay. Um, how to be in college without losing your faith. It's something in that. Yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, that's right. You, you, can, you can just say that's the working title. That's yeah. the working title. That's yeah. my title. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Um, it's it's all letters to our daughter. And uh -huh. it's really, um, because what we both faced, we both um, went to the same school, actually, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And we both took New Testament from Bart Ehrman. And okay. so we, you know, you walk in as a 19-year-old and here you are, and he's telling you all these things about the New Testament you've never heard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're sitting there realizing he's studied, he's very smart. You know, he knows mm -hmm. a lot more than I do. Mm -hmm. What do you do as a student when you're, yeah. when you're there? Anyway, that's, yeah. So it's, it's, it's something we both faced going yeah. to university. Yeah, that's great. And, uh, that, I think that sort of moves us into this topic of mentoring, because in a sense, what Mike's trying to do there is, is mentor your daughter and also a next generation of how to think well and uh, engage with these uh, perspectives that challenge the Bible. And uh, that brings me to your book, uh, Growing Together, uh, this lovely book with the subtitle Taking Mentoring Beyond Small Talk and uh, Prayer Requests. Uh, why did you write a book about mentoring? Mm. Um, you know, there were a lot of reasons. Um, one, I was mentored so well, um, in my early Christian faith. And I'm so thankful for it that I think I felt this need to, um, tell others how important this is to do. But the other thing I worked for 10 years in women's ministry at my church mm -hmm. and, um, I kept hearing from younger women, this desire to have an older woman who could spiritually mentor them. And then I would ask older women who I knew, love the Lord and knew their Bibles. Mm. And they would look at me and say, what does she want me to do with her? And they were completely intimidated um, mm. to enter into this mentor relationship. It just felt like mm. an intimidating thing. And so basically I was just trying to provide a pathway for these re relationships to happen by no means a prescription. I, I would never want this to be like, well, this is the book to mentor. Um, mm. I think there are so many good ways we can um, help one another grow in the faith. But I just wanted to provide one lifeline. Like, here's one path. If you're struggling to know what to do, here's what you could do together. Um, because I just saw so many women who both wanted to do this, but not knowing how to do it. Yeah. Uh, now I learned a new word in this book, and that is uh, <laughs> mentee. I, uh, I've never heard that word before, a mentor and a mentee. I've heard a counselor and counselee, interviewer, interviewee, but I thought, of course, of course it's mentee. Uh, it's, it's a very odd be, word. It's meant to be mentee. <laughs> um, so uh, how would you define mentoring? Uh, is it synonymous with discipleship or is there a difference? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say if you looked at discipleship as an umbrella, it's a form of discipleship, but mm -hmm. discipleship's a much broader umbrella. I mean, I think discipleship happens when you hear the word preached on a Sunday, in some mm -hmm. sense, this passing on of the truths of the gospel. Um, but mentoring, so I would say, and I would, I do want to stress it's spiritual mentoring. Um, yeah. It's not just mentoring on, you know, how to fix a car or how, you know, I mean, that, that can happen, but we're talking about sp spiritual mentoring. And, you know, the easy definition I like to say is equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for the glory of God. 
So equipping the saints, you know, for, for the work of ministry, for the glory of God. So it's not just someone to sit down and talk about your feelings. So you may talk about your feelings, but there's a real purpose that I'm in a sense investing in you to build up Christ's church for the glory of God. I'm not investing in you. So I'll have a new friend. I'm not that, although hopefully that's a byproduct. Um, I'm investing in you because I believe I'm supposed to call back and pass on to the next generation, the truths of the gospel. Um, and that that's how the church is built. And, and essentially I think that's what Jesus did. He lived, I mean, yes, he went and preached to the 5,000, but for three years, he mainly lived with 12 Mm -hmm. men and Mm -hmm. he invested in them and they shared meals together and they did life together. And somehow from those 11, this movement called Christianity was born. You know, I mean, that's, that's really, really what he did. And the gospel went forward um, from his investment. And so I believe that's how the church is strengthened and encouraged as we invest life on life with one another. Yeah. And uh, you have a lovely illustration at the beginning um, about your dad and a, a tree that was bent over in your garden um maybe by the store maybe by a young girl swinging in it um but uh tell us the story about that and and it's reflected on the cover of of the book i think really beautifully but i think it really captures what mentoring is so do you want to share that illustration with us yeah i remember coming out and seeing my dad um tying these two trees together and i was thinking why on earth is he doing that like i say because we were playing on the bent over one it was the one we would bounce on which was not helping that tree at all and it had been bent over from a storm and he essentially tethered it to an old oak that was standing beside it and i asked him why he was doing it and he said this is what's going to help this younger tree grow straight so it's going to help it and its development. And when I think about mentoring, why, why I use that image is because in a sense, that older tree is simply standing beside the younger tree. Mm-hmm. They aren't making them grow. They're mm-hmm. not the sun and the rain. You know, they're mm-hmm. just standing beside and offering the strength they've been given essentially through surviving many storms. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about mentoring, I think of older people standing beside younger people and saying, I can't make you grow. You know, only God can do that but I can stand beside you and offer the strength that the Lord has given to me as, as I've walked with him through many seasons of life. And I think that takes pressure off both people. Um, it, it helps the mentee have right expectations. This person can't solve my life. This person can't make me grow, but this person can stand beside me. And it, it takes a lot of the pressure off the mentor because mm-hmm. they understand I'm just here to offer up what I've been given, but mm. I, I can't save this person and I can't, I can't make them grow spiritually. And so there's a lot of freedom, um, I think in that picture of mentoring. Yeah. And, you know, as you read the Bible, you sort of see these relationships actually all the way through, don't you? You see a, a Moses and a Joshua, uh, you see a Paul and a Timothy or a Paul and a Titus and, uh, and you see the fruitfulness of a life in a Joshua mm. or a Timothy or a Titus. Um, uh, or even a Ruth with a Naomi, uh, the fruitfulness of a life with an older person there who's been just further along the path on, on the pilgrimage. It's able to look back and give, give you advice and help along the way. I think, I think it's a, 
a really important idea that's firmly rooted in in scripture has there been any relationships that you've experienced as a mentee uh, with a mentor that uh, was really helpful uh, formative in your christian mm -hmm. life absolutely um when i was in high school um a teacher at, at my local high school was a believer and she really just mentored us by being a christian in the workplace and she ran this ministry called the fellowship of christian athletes and really she was just available to us and i mean she never what i would say formally mentored me she just shared life with us and would pass on so much good wisdom i mean i could still hear the things she used to say to us you know like look don't think you need to be up front if you're not really spending time with jesus yeah i mean she would just put it to us she didn't want our service without a deep love for the lord and those things stuck with me. And then when I went to college, I actually had a, a, an university staff worker who mentored me for three years. Every week, she met with me for three years. And we studied First Peter together. I can still remember studying it with her. But then we just sometimes we just chatted about life and ministry. But she invested in me for three years in a row. And mm. it was just such a blessing to have someone take the time to sit down with, with me every week and, and really invest. So I'm, I'm very thankful for those women. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned um, in your book uh, other women who have helped. You've mentioned Elizabeth Elliot, mm -hmm. Kay Arthur. Did you know Elizabeth Elliot personally? No, I did write her, you know, okay. and I did write her and she wrote me back. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, I was, I was just writing her to thank her for her books and, okay. yeah. um, you know, just that how much they had impacted me and uh -huh. she took the time to write me back, which completely surprised me. I did not expect that. Yeah. Um, and it, it was, it was so kind of have that letter somewhere, and, yeah. you know, in something, but, yeah. um, yeah, just her words. I know you said that she had really, her works had really impacted yeah. you as well. Yeah. I, I was just fascinated by the, the Jim Elliott and the five missionaries who were uh, slaughtered by the Alka Indians and so that I was brought up as a missionary kid in Africa and I've mm -hmm. always had a heart for mission and so that's just always interested me so yeah I read a lot of the Jim Elliott journals and then uh, read her books about that and then started reading her other books so the mark of a man Mm -hmm. that she wrote I read and I remember it had a big impact on me in my early 20s and but like yourself I wrote to her once and uh, I got a reply yeah I preached a sermon on Job 23 on the sovereignty of God and the suffering of his people. Mm. It was in my early 20s. And I used her as an illustration. I sort of wanted to encourage her. So I, I bizarrely found a friend of a friend who in Scotland was like a niece to her from her second marriage or something like this. So I got the address and wrote her. And yeah, she wrote back, typed letter. Yeah. Typed letter. And uh, I have it somewhere in my house. I don't know where, but yeah. So yeah. Uh, I think she was a great example to, you know, to younger women of, of mm -hmm. an older godly woman who took, um, you know, her, her Christian life so seriously and submission to God, even in the midst of some very great suffering. And it's a great example to us. Yeah. 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 Uh, have you had any relationships uh, the other way around where you've mentored and you've seen a young girl really grow in her faith because of being taken under your wing or, or maybe some other women who've taken mm -hmm. other girls under their wing. Have you seen some nice uh, examples of growth there? 
Yeah. One, one thing um, that I loved watching at um, the church where I did women's ministry for all those years, we actually formed mentoring groups. Um, and so rather than it be one-on-one, we actually did one to two to four um, mm-hmm. because in some ways that made the relationship stay more on track sometimes rather than uh-huh. get off into one person's kind of circumstantial issues. You know, it, it really kept the groups pretty focused. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I watched so many sweet relationships bloom out of those that so much so that they were just set up to be a year and some groups said, no, we want to keep meeting. And so they would continue to meet even after the year and they would continue to get together and just talk with one another and, and walk through life with one another. And for me, it's been great to be here in the seminary community. My husband's at Reform Theological Seminary Mm -hmm. and um, to, to get to just see women who are getting ready to go into ministry a lot of times with their husbands, or maybe they're in school themselves and they're going in and just, it's been such a privilege to get to know these women and then watch the Lord scatter them all over the world. I'm sure the same is at Westminster. You know, you see these students who come in for this little time and now we have good friends in Prague and Spain and all these places around the world doing gospel work and we get to hear back from them. And it's, it's a wonderful thing to get to be a part, a small part of that larger story in their lives. That's great. It's one of the great things, isn't it, of ministry where you see people grow in their Christian mm-hmm. faith, either whether if you've been in pastoral ministry or now at seminary and hear stories years later of what they've got up to and how they're serving the Lord and the kingdom. It's, it's a great encouragement. And um, a little scary sometimes because of the things they remember that you said. I don't know if you ever have uh, this experience. You're like, oh, that's what you remember that I said? You know? <laughs> like, I don't remember saying that. But, you know, the little nuggets yeah. that will yeah. get passed on. Yeah, when I hear that, I'm th- sometimes I'm thinking, yeah, and I've changed my view on that. But do I tell you that <laughs> now? Or do I, I'll just keep quiet. I'll just keep quiet. <laughs> um, uh, I was going to ask was... Um, so maybe uh, there are some women listening who are thinking, well, I'd love to mentor a younger woman, but I don't really know where to start. And mm-hmm. what would even be the structure that I would use for that mentoring relationship? What would your advice be there? Do you have a sort of a general structure that you recommend or encourage women to use? Um, yeah. Well, the first thing I would always say that older women or younger women who are looking for is to go where they are. Meaning um, it's really easy to pick groups and Bible studies with people who are all the same age uh, you know, as we are, both for the older women and the younger women. And so I would just encourage you, if you're an older woman, go to some events where the younger women are. If you're a younger woman, join a small group that has some older women in it, because it's nice to just get to know people relationally before you ask, will you be my mentor? (laughs) That's kind of a big question. And then the second thing I say is then just ask them to coffee. Yeah, just say, can we get coffee? Rather than again, Mm -hmm. will you be my mentor can be very intimidating. But if if you are kind of at that place where you're establishing a a more formal mentoring relationship, I would say it's really helpful to just put um, kind of boundaries on it. Like, when are we going to meet? When, how long are we going to meet? Um, what time, you know, we're going to meet the first Tuesday of every month, or are we going to meet every other week? Those type questions, because you're both coming into it with different expectations and different availability. And so I just find having that conversation on the front end can help with, you know, 
things go more smoothly because you both had it on your calendar. Um, Cause I know I get so busy that you just forget, Oh, it's already been a month and we haven't met. But if I have it on my calendar that it's yeah. the fourth Friday of every month, well then we're going to get together and, and mm. remember to do that. So I do think having some structure and then I, I think, so that's kind of the structure of the time, but then having something you're actually going to talk about is really helpful too. So if the person wants to grow in their prayer life, maybe you read a book on prayer. If the person wants to grow in evangelism, maybe you read J.I. Packer, Evangelism and Sovereignty of God together. You, I mean, like that you have some curriculum you're trying to grow. I mean, it could just be just read the book of John together. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be a, a book someone wrote, but just to have yeah. some content that you're going to study so that the time isn't just spent on circumstantial happenstance and let's get caught up with one another. Cause I think that's what can happen sometimes is that we just stay in the circumstantial and we never really move into the spiritual growth part mm -hmm. of mentoring. Yeah. And just being even more practical. So when you say open the Bible together, do you <laughs> have a, a set format, a set way you approach just beginning a Bible study, the way you prepare for that? If it's one-on-one, -on -one, that's so much easier because you can just read it together and say, do you notice any words that are repeated in this passage? Do you notice any things like a therefore? Do you notice any contrasting words? Do you notice any lists? I mean, those are just some simple questions as you're studying. And then be curious together. What don't you understand? That was confusing. What on earth did that mean? I mean, you know, this morning I was reading Romans 7 and I'm confused by it. I wish I had someone to mentor me through it, <laughs> you know, yeah. as I'm reading it. I'm like, what is Paul talking about here? Um, and just kind of sharing that together and just yeah. to have someone to talk through the questions you're both facing as you enter the text and t yeah. talk about it. Um, so I don't, when it's one-on-one, -on -one, I don't really have structure, just more questions. And I, I think yeah. that's really a great way what, what do you learn about God from this passage? You know, yeah. What do you learn about man from this passage? Yeah, all those type yeah. questions I think are really helpful. Yeah, I think about 10.30 tonight as you're heading to bed, you should ask Mike what he thinks <laughs> of Romans 7. Oh, I, I know. I tell him all the time, you have to help me. I help put you through school. You, I, I, you owe me is what I, what I tell him. I have, I have a lot of questions for him. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, so we've uh, we've talked about mentoring and uh, how do you and Mike uh, look on mentoring in the family with mm. your children, Emma, John and Kate? What do you view it as a unique kind of mentoring or same kind of thing? Yeah, I think it's I mean, it's lifelong. I mean, what a beautiful thing really to get to grow up in a Christian home and what a huge responsibility as Christian parents. And in this sense, um, our kids know if we're fakes. And so I, I think mentoring our children really begins, um, you know, I think back to Deuteronomy 6, you know, we have to ourselves love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and strength. And his word has to be on our heart before we teach it to them. And, and the reality is it's the most intensive mentoring we'll ever have because they see the pattern of our lives like no one else will mm -hmm. ever see. And so in a lot of ways, we're putting a shape before them of what a Christian looks like, um, not just by our words, but by our actions. So, I mean, that's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> the reality of it is terrifying. Yeah. And so I hope more than anything, 
what they've seen from us is that we listen to the Lord, we love the Lord, and and by His grace, we try to obey Him. Um, I, I think that life on life mentoring, and you know, and of course we teach them the Word, and we we do all the the other. But I think the mentoring is really as life on life as you can get. Um, yes. And so it's a privilege, but it is it is such a responsibility because they learn the Christian life from watching us. Mm. Um, and it's a joy. But and, and, and as I've lived it, what I will say is the Bible is meant for families, you know, because we're told, yeah. what do you do with your sin? Because guess what? Every one of you are going to yell at each other at some point. And yeah. thankfully, the Bible tells us the healthy way to deal with that. Say you're sorry. Ask for repentance. Yeah, repent and ask yeah. for forgiveness. And um, it's, it's, it's really when you see these precepts really do, in some sense, work in practice. That's a healthy way to respond to our sin. And we're teaching them all those things. But it um, doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah. Do. Yeah. Well, you've written a lovely book for your children, which is sort of part of the mentoring process of instilling a great um, truth in them. This is the book, um, <laughs> Wherever You Go, I Want You to Know. Um, where'd you get the idea to write this book from? My daughter was heading off to college. She was a junior in high school. And actually, the kind of strange part of the story is I broke my ankle. Um, and I was home from church one Sunday and so the house was quiet, which is rare, you know, for yeah. anyone. And actually I was journaling and I had just finished praying for her. Um, just not knowing, you know, there's a lot of pressure on high school students where they'll go to school, the grades they're making, how they're going to score on all these tests. And yeah. you start thinking as a parent, what did I teach them? It all went so fast. Did I teach mm -hmm. them how to clean the toilet? Did I teach them to cook anything? Do they know anything about life? And kind of what settled in my soul is, have I, have I told her the one thing that matters? Have mm. I told her the one thing? It doesn't matter what she does. It doesn't matter where she goes. Does she just know all, all I really care about is that she loves Jesus. She can do whatever she wants to do. She can, you know, be poor. She can, you know, whatever, like all those things don't matter. Does she love Jesus? And so it kind of welled up from, thinking about my my child going off to college okay uh well it's got a lovely title wherever you go i want you to know i i uh, noticed the uh alliteration wherever and want and the uh and rhyme go no and then the five syllables balancing it out so it's a perfect little refrain which you repeat throughout the book and that's what makes it so memorable did did it take you long to come up with that? Did that take a lot of tightening or was that something that actually came quite inspirational and came quickly to you? Yeah, I was actually, I went back and filmed my journal thinking about this. And it's funny, it was, it was the very first thing I had written was uh, that kind of refrain that went through, mm -hmm. you know, I was looking back and I, I don't know anything about writing poetry. <laughs> so it was just the thing that came to me was this little, yeah. this little rhyme. Um, and I, and I have no idea. I, I, I wasn't, it just sounded right. If, uh -huh. if that makes yeah. sense, but I, I didn't really plan it. Ah, wow. Well, it's perfectly balanced, you know, five syllables and on each section of the sentence, it would probably be one of those 20 styled sentences that I <laughs> talked about in the book, you know, earlier. Um, no, it's lovely. It's a, it's a lovely little book and it's poetic all the way through. So did that actually take you long to 
you know, make everything rhyme all the way through. Yeah, those little, the little different parts I had written, it was really fun again to go back. Like I'm sitting here with this little journal right here and I had just marked out different bits and written different bits and it just kind of came together. And um, uh-huh. I have no idea. I mean, I wasn't thinking of a children's book when I was writing this. It was just, yeah. you know, I've, I've found myself doing that through the years. We actually... Um, lost a child to miscarriage. And I wrote a poem for that child. Someone had told me, um, you know, find a way to mark that child in your heart. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have a grave, you don't have, you know, but it's this, how do you, how do you kind of honor that child? Mm-hmm. And so I woke up at like two in the morning when I knew I was losing the baby and I wrote this poem. It was called Child of the Womb. And it was, it just came out. And that's kind Mm. of what happened in this instance. It just kind of was the groaning of the heart, you know, and the the putting forth of of what we think. And so, um, yeah, it just kind of happened. Yeah. Well, I I actually think a lot of writing is actually inspired, not in the uh, Theopnustus sense (laughs) of God breathes, but... uh, I really do think writing, good writing, is often just something that's inspired in the best sense of the word, where you just get that um, urge to write something down, that feeling, I've got to get this down, I, I need to write about this particular thing. And even though it maybe goes through many, many drafts before it's fine-tuned, it's still, you know, the original inspiration is what actually makes it so good, I think, mm. you know. Uh, what do um, what do your kids, Emma, John, and Kate, think of it? They've had so much fun with it because we did start editing it. Actually, Katie Morgan at the Good Book Company helped just saying, uh-huh. hey, can you add in some things like about life circumstances, you know, failing yeah. or succeeding? She, she was so helpful through the process. Yeah. And so I remember one car ride. I was getting the kids to help me. I was like, how does this sound? And, you know, we just had so much fun as a family kind of working on it together. And they were laughing at different parts. And so it's been really fun to get to do with them in a lot of ways. That's great. Um, uh, They're beautiful illustrations by Isabel Lundy. Um, Did you have much input uh, to that? You know, tell listeners what the process is like between the author and the illustrator and the relationship there before that you actually get the product. Yeah. So they sent me a different, a few different illustrations from a few different illustrators. And when I saw hers, I just loved it. I loved how it was whimsical and fun. And, um, I actually was, was writing to her the other day and I said, but I love she, the first picture I saw was this picture of the King, um, and you could cook, you could cook meals for a king. That was the line. And the little girl's holding all this food, but then her foot's kicked out, and there's a teacup sitting on the foot. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. You know, it just was so cute and whimsical. Um, and so I love that about it. Um, yeah. I know you did a kids book as well. Did you work with just one illustrator and and do that process? Yeah. Um... A bit like you, they sent me, I think, a couple of examples. And then I I said, I want this guy, Joe Hawks, who had um, illustrated for uh, New Grove Press. uh, Because the kids book I did was a true story about us losing our daughter, Layla, and a conversation with Ben and me. So I wanted me and Ben to look like us and want Jackie to look like she did. And uh, he was really good. He was so sensitive to the whole sort of progress, progression of the pregnancy. 
Uh, but he really built up the excitement that Ben was expecting. You know, um, he had a T-shirt on, you know, I'm going to be a big brother. Mm. He, he just added touches that we never asked him to. But we thought, wow, you have been so sensitive to all the expectations we had that we were about to have a little girl join the family. Mm. And then she didn't um, in the live sense of the word, but uh, of the term of family. But uh um, yeah, he uh, he was excellent. I mean, there was one time he uh, one one page where he had me wearing sort of slightly pink pajamas, so I had to ask him <laughs> to change those because I thought uh, my mates are never going to let me live this down if they see me in pink pajamas. So uh, yeah, but he he was great, and uh, you know there were some things I said, oh, could you fix this or change that, and he was very flexible the, we actually have a funeral scene at the back of the yeah. book because uh, we had a funeral for Layla at white coffin at the front but I get, I sent him a photo of my family and friends who were at the graveside mm. and I said would you mind just putting you know people in that look like this and he, so basically at the back of the book it's it's our whole extended family drawn in mm. to the church scene and um, so that's really nice for all of us who were there mm. to, re to remember that day, which was bittersweet as we said our final farewell. So, yeah, I, I think it's good for listeners to hear that. I think an illustrator of a kid's book really makes it, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, your, your poem is really well done. But if you didn't have good illustrations, the book would sort of flop. Absolutely. The words would fly, but the con the, the pictures would just not capture whereas this is it's got both it's got great words and uh, great illustrations you know? yeah it was so surprising because some of the things she couldn't have known um like there's a picture of a boy with a big it looks like a zucchini or something but uh, my son loves to grow watermelons and he will come uh -huh. in with these huge watermelons and it was just it was so funny because you know she couldn't have known that and then you see it in the picture you're like that's perfect, you yeah. know, and so yeah. it was, it's really fun. I, I found yeah. it a more fun process than any other book. Yes. Because yeah. Pictures are a lot better than editing words. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Um, do you have any other kids books planned as a result of producing your first one? I have an idea for one that I've discussed um, with a friend. And so we're, we're kind of thinking through it. Would it work? And so um, I love children's books. I, my mom mm -hmm. was so great. I, I had books around my house all growing up, um, mm -hmm. wonderful books that stick to me. It's, it's interesting. There's this book called The, the Little Rabbit Who Wanted Red Wings. And uh -huh. it's really a book about envy. Uh -huh. And I find it interesting that that was my first book. You know, uh -huh. it, it, these, you know, the moral formation that happens through children's book is pretty profound. Um, and it wasn't a book in the Bible or wasn't a, but it was just a story that kind of told right and wrong. Yeah. And I think there's a real place for that, you know, mm -hmm. in the, in the Christian world, just telling the stories that make us love what is good and mm -hmm. hate what is evil without necessarily being a Bible story, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And do you have any other books in the pipeline, you know, for women or adults that you? <laughs> I feel done. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to, I, I have ideas, but I'm putting them on maybe in five years. I, just... <laughs> I, thought, I thought COVID you would have been, you know, writing away on some three books at one time or something. No, no, I'm ready <laughs> for a break. My, my writing, my writing fingers feel numb. So I'm, yeah. I'm ready to take a little break. Yeah. Well, what would you say to 
uh, folk listening who may have an idea for starting a blog or writing a book, uh, but they just think, well, I'd love to do it. I think I've got something I want to write on, but they've never done it. Uh, what, what would your advice be? Yeah, I would encourage them to start trying to write um, an article or send a pitch to a publisher. I do think it's really helpful, even then it's less intimidating than starting your whole blog, you know, to think, am I going to have something to keep saying? I mean, that takes a lot of time. Whereas if you maybe have one article, send it off to a publication and try to get published. And it's great to have the editing help um, because you know, I, I think one of the worst things that can happen is hitting posts too soon. Um, and so having someone who can help you in that process and even edit you before you start really writing on a regular basis um, is really helpful because the honest truth is people who work in editing are trying to protect you. <laughs> you know, we don't want it to blow up in a negative way for you. So, yeah. so we, sometimes they've seen the blow ups happen, so they know what to look for. Um, yeah. And so it's kind of helpful to, I, you know, I, I, I know it's great to just start blogging and, and write in that way, but I do think it's really helpful to write in places where you can also be edited and, and, mm -hmm. and, and do that. But also just talking to people who write and saying, Hey, would you mind looking over this? Um, yeah. Yeah, Jen Wilkin has a great article on having a friend editorial team. Friend editorial, she put it all in one word. Yeah. Um, and you know, she has the theologian, she likes to have reader work, but she also yeah. has just the average layperson reader work. Yeah. And yeah. and and that's that's really helpful to know. Is this something you should spend your time on? Um, mm -hmm. does it resonate with people? And and getting back advice is really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Does um I was going to ask, does Mike edit your work? But I think you did answer that earlier. He, he does read over everything. Do you, yes. do, you, do you ever edit his stuff just from an outside person? Yes, you know? yes. His blogs and things we'll, we'll talk mm. about, yes, on, on those, those I can read and help him with um, right. yeah. <laughs> normally. But a, a lot of times for both of us, it's just it's so helpful to have another person who can just look at it and say, oh, I think you should move this here and do this here. Mm. Yes, yeah, so we both read each other's a yeah. good bit. Yeah, um, which is helpful. I think the thing you mentioned it earlier at the beginning, but uh, you've just sort of touched on it there by moving things around. I think people read good writing and they think like, wow, this must just flow out of their fingers or pen. And I, I remember J.I. Packer, when I read Packer, like knowing God, I, I think he's sitting beside me talking. You know, it's so effortless. It just flows. But I remember him saying that all his writing has been like something like I've forgotten the number, but six to eight drafts yeah. of going over it and over it and over it. And I think that sort of can help young writers realize it's like building a wall with bricks. You, you sort of start building, and then you realize oh, that brick doesn't fit there, it needs to go over here, and this bit needs to go there. And it really is like a building process, isn't it? Where you sort of build, sort of break down again, build again, build, break, and, and only then at the end does it actually sort of look half decent. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. But it really is a process. It's not something that just comes naturally. I, I, I was thinking about it today. I was trying to write a preface for a book I'm editing, and it's taken me three days to write a two-page preface. And I thought, this is really a result of the fall. Like, <laughs> why can I not just sit and write two pages and that they flow logically? Why am I always moving sentences around? Mm. But it is just part of the fallen world, isn't it? Trying to write with uh, 
swollen minds. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I was talking to James Anderson is a professor down here, and yeah. he said, just get something out. Mm-hmm. And think of it like a big block of marble, and then you start to chisel it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're going to cut just similar to that block imagery. And yeah. that's what I think now. I say to myself, I've got one hour. Just get something on the page. You can chisel it later. And mm-hmm. so I'll write the bad sentences, and I'll, but I'll just get something out. And yeah. that, that keeps me writing yeah. <laughs> is, yeah. is that it doesn't have to be perfect. Yes. Yeah. Um, finally, uh, Melissa, you, you, you're involved in mentoring uh, women's ministry in your local church, but you're also involved with uh, the Gospel Coalition. You're the coordinator for women's ministries and initiatives at the Gospel Coalition. We know your conference was postponed, unfortunately, due to COVID. Do you want to give us a wee update on that and, and what the plans are for that as we close? Yes, hopefully we will be gathering in April. We have, you know, but as we all are learning to say, if the Lord wills, which is, it's funny, we're studying James, the book of James, which is, our theme is steadfastness. And it's been very needed this year. And, And so we've laughed. We're like, well, we are having to be steadfast about planning this conference and trusting the Lord, you know, if he wills, hopefully we will have it in April. Um, So we love being together with that conference Mm -hmm. as women. It's, you know, we, we had over 10,000 women registered to be there. Um, It's, it's such a wonderful thing to get to gather together and study and learn and then have an amazing bookstore, all these things. And we love it. So I hope it will happen, but yeah, we're trusting the Lord as we go forward. Yeah. Well, we will pray it is the Lord's will that it happens. And, uh, you can all gather together and be fed from the book of James. That would be wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Melissa, it's been wonderful having you on the afterward. And uh, thanks for joining us. And we wish you every blessing with your books that are already out there and your family and Mike. And uh, pray that you keep writing and serving the church uh, in this way. So thanks so much. Uh, thanks for having me. It's been so fun to yeah, get to talk. Great. You're welcome. I'm going to hand back to Josiah now, who's uh, going to tell us who's coming up in the next episode. Well, thanks, Johnny and Melissa, for joining us tonight. Uh, I'm happy to announce that on episode five of The Afterword, we'll be hosting CCEF's Ed Welch and Darby Strickland. Uh, Ed and Darby will be on for a conversation about Darby's new book, uh, which releases next month uh, from PNR Publishing. Her book is called Is It Abuse? And it's available for 50% off on our website. So if, I'd encourage you to hop over to our website, wtsbooks.com afterward. You can pre-order the book and uh, find out more about episode five. For a reminder, you can download the afterward in podcast format. It's available on all major platforms. Uh, you can also watch episodes on our YouTube channel. Thanks for joining us. That's it for now, uh, and we hope to see you next time on The Afterward.